the Dog and Puppy Show. No, it's not. This is Probate <laughs> Weekly. Uh, I'm Bill Gross. We get together every Thursday, 4 p.m., talk about all things probate real estate with an investor or realtor, um, wholesaler, attorney, vendor. Uh, we all want to get together and make more money and create more value and more um, wealth for us in the long run by learning how to be more effective in what we do, helping our customers. Um, oftentimes we have on here, uh, I interview attorneys and other vendors or practitioners. We're really excited today to have not just an attorney, specialist in probate, but one I've had the, the pleasure to work with recently and as well see in the courtroom in action in life. So I know she's really, she really is an attorney, or at least she pretends one in courtroom, I know for a fact. Uh, Megan Wall, Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, thank you for having me, Bill. And so just a real quick background, where'd you grow up and then how'd you get into law and then how'd you get into probate in particular? Grew up in central Illinois uh, in a town called Peoria. Just happened to get into law. I moved out to Los Angeles, decided I wanted to maybe see if law would be the right path for me. I worked at a firm as a legal intern, legal clerk for a year, liked it, and then I went to school uh, at Pepperdine. Nice. And so how'd you end up in of all types of law, probate and conservatorships in that, that niche? It, I wish it was a more glamorous story, but during law school, I was working at a personal injury law firm and I didn't like it at all. And I was very just upset that you know, it just wasn't clicking for me. Um, and then, so I ended up leaving the personal injury firm after I passed the bar exam and I found my job at my former firm I was at on Craigslist. I think it was like three in the morning. I was desperate. I'm like, I gotta find something. Wow. And, and that's how I found it. And then I, and then once I started working at the firm I was at before, I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I was very relieved. I think like, like real estate attorney, a law is a very wide industry and there's different niches or different silos. And the more you can find yourself in one of those silos, I think the more rewarding it is and the more profitable it is. So yeah. what, what is a particular, you know, obviously I get you're coming out of a job you didn't like, but you've been in this field for a while now. And you're kind of all in in this niche. What is it about this that keeps you going, or keeps you motivated, or excited about the practice of law? Well, as I was sharing before we started our little interview, I like a full plate. I like to do a lot of things. So, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> this area of law is far from boring. Um, there is, you know, I tell people all the time that my drama cup overfloweth. Like this satisfies that i don't need to watch any sort of television show or anything it's it's really interesting um you get to help people out there's also this camaraderie in the um, probate bar where we can kind of between good attorneys work things out almost like a business deal versus civil litigation where you're just fighting lots of you know, paperwork and, and here everyone kind of speaks the same language and we can get things done and we're dealing with normal people. You know, we're not dealing most of the time, not with uh, corporations have big pockets. Interesting. So yeah, um, I'm older than you are. There was a, there was a, back when Sunnet Live was new and innovative, I guess it's celebrating its 50th anniversary. There was a Rosanna, Rosanna Dana was one of the bits and she used to say, it's always something. I think with probate, it's always something. It's always something. It's, <laughs> right, if that's some air pops out of the woodwork, it's some ex-wife, it's a squatter, it's a this, it's a that. It's, a child, it's always, yeah. 
and, I, and I think the distinction between people who are actually in the business and not is people who are not complain about all those little problems. And those of you, and I think me, who are in it and love it, we brag about all those problems. Like those are badges of honor for us, right? Yeah. It, it kind of is like, oh, listen to this. You know, when you get your friends on the phone who are in the same industry, like, listen to this crazy. <laughs> yeah. And people in the business don't really appreciate like how exciting it is. It's kind of like your, yeah. your little, little thing. Well, good. Um, so, and I know, I mean, we, we work on something, uh, you know, on a particular case together and it's one of those problem kind of customers, but I think, you, you know, you, you, you solve their problem, make them happy. And that's kind of what we do as a business. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, your focus. I know when I go to your website, like probate attorneys, I recommend, um, websites, trust estates, conservatorships, and elder law all kind of wrapped together within that. Do you consider yourself one of those niches that you focus in more, or is it more equal for those that particular area? I think it's about equal. I personally prefer conservatorships. Um, I I like that there is a procedure in the court that protects individuals who can't make decisions for themselves. And oftentimes we're, you know, talking about elderly individuals who are suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's. And within that, there is often elder abuse, even by family members. Um, you know, trying to take over mom or dad's assets. So what I like about conservatorships is that people are taking action now to protect mom or dad, whereas sometimes where people are fighting about a trust after the fact, and they didn't do a conservatorship or they didn't try to take any protective proceeding, usually there might have been some elder abuse and they didn't do anything about it, which sometimes doesn't sit well with me. I like that people take the initiative and try to protect the elderly individual while they're alive. Yeah. Now, conservatorships are can be very complicated though as well, right? Of course. And and do you do work where you were hired by somebody to do it, or is it court appointed type work? It's both. both. So I I do serve on the court appointed panel. So when someone when someone asks to put someone else under a conservatorship, the proposed conservatee, the person that they're going to put under the conservatorship, has the right to an attorney. Unfortunately, no one's quite sure at that juncture whether or not the person has capacity and whether they can hire their own attorney. So they're appointed one and very much like a public defender. And so what I'll do is I'll represent this person who may or may not be put under a conservatorship to make sure that, sure that their rights are advocated because sometimes they're fine and someone's trying to put them under a conservatorship and they don't want to be placed under conservatorship. I'm sure we've all heard about the whole Britney Spears case in the news. Like that, that's a conservatorship and she didn't want to be under conservatorship anymore and the court granted her wish. Yeah, and for those who don't know, for those of us who went to court regularly, it was kind of a circus once a month or two where they're hearing, and then there would be these people protesting outside, right. save Brittany. Though I, I, at some part, I do feel, you know, um, you know, there is an affinity towards a person who, against her will, perhaps debatable, I guess, legally, but seemingly against her will, her rights are taken from her and given to somebody else, and so you can understand why that would be. A take away freedom it, it shouldn't be done it shouldn't be done frivolously it should be done with great care right that's the whole point of this process right and it's taken very seriously i tell people that next to incarceration this is the most restrictive thing that a court can do to you we can even take away your right to vote if you're put under a conservatorship 
So you take away someone's ability to make their own medical decisions. You can take away their ability to make their financial decisions. There's cases where you have to decide whether or not to pull the plug. Like these are serious matters where like life and death is actually on the line. And I think there's, it, it, there's value in that where you feel like you're actually contributing and actually making a difference. And so when you're the court appointed conservator, uh, attorney for the conservative, um, and if you determine they don't really need it, is that a litigious process or is that pretty much the court looks at your determination and says, well, you're appointed to represent them and you're going to act in their best interest? That's a great question. So the laws actually just changed prior to, I think it was this year, the laws were, you know, you advocate on behalf of your client. Now it's, you have to zealously advocate on behalf of your client. So there was always this discussion or whether or not, apologize. There's this discussion. There's this discussion whether or not um, you could act in the best interest of your client or whether you had to advocate your their wishes. So you have to advocate their wishes regardless of your personal beliefs of it, or you think it's in their best interest or not. Mm. So there's been situations where I personally believe that my client should be placed under a conservatorship. However, they're telling me they don't want to be placed under a conservatorship. So that's what I have to report to the court. Then it's the obligation of the court and the parties to evaluate the evidence to decide whether or not a conservatorship is appropriate and overrule their objections or, or overrule the conservatives objections. They also have a right to a trial, a jury trial, if, if they want to go that far. So yes, litigation can happen. So at some point you're trying to make a decision as you start to represent them, are they capable of making a decision? It's the same decision theoretically that we're making as real estate agents if they want to sell their property. I've been in a case where I met with somebody and I was only paying detailed attention and signed a listing agreement. I came home and somebody called me and said, do you notice this? Do you notice that? And I realized, yeah, you're right. You know, I just wasn't, I was so zealous in getting my the listing. I didn't really pay attention. So what, and I'm not asking for a whole class on, um, you, know, you know, whether somebody's qualified or not, but generally what would you say you look at if, if I was a real estate agent and I had questions, what would you tell me to look out for or what would the standard be that you'd ask me to kind of pay attention to? Well, it helps to have done probate sales before. It's a very unique process because you can wind up in court and be subject to a court confirmation. And there's a bunch of little hoops you have to jump through. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't done a probate sale before, highly recommend telling the attorney that so that the both of you are aware of the experience, but if you can find another agent who can probably walk you along through the path, that would be helpful. Cause I'm not a real estate agent. You know, I know enough, you know, I can say, these are the things you have to look out for, but I am not a real estate agent. So there's, there are some things that some of the agents that I've worked with in the past know more about than I do in regards to probate sales. And I rely upon their expertise. And it's also, if you're an experienced, or if you have some experience with probate sales, then um, it keeps the cost of the estate low. So the real estate agent is doing the work versus the attorney doing the work at an hourly rate. Right. Um, go ahead. And Did so- specifics like little little tips well just to clarify for those listening so um 
I think you're referring specifically to those listings that require core confirmation, right? So, which in California would be all limited authority cases, for whatever reason, the judge doesn't give them full authority, but limited, they need a court confirmation process. I believe it's true on all conservatorships and guardianships, regardless if you're selling their residence, that requires court confirmation process, correct? That's correct. Um, limited authority, you need to court confirmation. Sometimes the court requires court confirmation for trust. And then for conservatorships, unless you have permission, otherwise you need to do court confirmation. Even if you're selling a piece of property when you have full authority, you still should be teed up to take it into court because it is subject to what's called a notice of proposed action. So you send out a two page document to the heirs saying, hey, this is what we'd like to do. You have 15 days to speak now or forever hold your peace. And what can happen is beneficiaries or the heirs say, no, 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 no. I think you're selling it for too low value. We want it to be brought to the court. So then you have to turn around and petition to have your property sold. So you, you should act. I always like to think that it's going to go before the court at some point in time and for full authority, hope that it doesn't. Yeah, that's good. Good strategy. It, it happens. <laughs> what are the common, if there are any common mistakes you see happen to hold things up? I'm sure you don't always get to work with the realtor you want or whatever right. happens, people make mistakes. What are the common errors that cause a court sale to either be denied and or just delayed, which delaying costs money and time? Um, let's see, not doing the publication, right? But I think that's more on the attorney and accepting the offer before the publication date. That one I see it all the time. It's that one. I look for that, you know, if the probate attorney doesn't catch the notes, I was looking for that as a realtor. Sometimes I'll bring an investor in and we'll, we'll want to know the you know, game plan beforehand. I see that one all the time. Classic. Yeah. Inventories, making sure that you have the appraisals, right? Um, I just I just had a new one today that kind of happened where um, after the court confirmation, there was contingencies. And that's making things go sideways. Yeah. So um, are there claiming contingencies? So there's there's you know, oh, 90 day listing. But I don't, I don't Classic. think, yeah, make sure you have a 90 day listing. Make it's sure actually on the form. It's actually, as a California realtor, it's in the form that you can't list more than 90 days. Just read the form and fill it out properly. That one's, that one's like an easy one for a realtor, I think. I have language. I always do as is, where is, no warranties, no guarantees, like sight on, it's all yours. Um, good so let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about that one. Because in our standard, in our default form, it has as is already. And I know every attorney always wants in every purchase contract that added in. I would say, well, it's right here in paragraph, I think it's 13 or 12. It's already yeah. right there, but they, but they want to spell it. What, is, what does that do? Why is that important to you to have that um, specifically agreed to? To cut off liability. You know, the person selling the house doesn't know anything about it. So, and we're telling the buyer, you know, buyer beware. We don't know what's going on. It could be great. You could walk in and walk into a mess. So there it is for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want anybody on the call, the purpose of the Zoom is that you can participate. You can okay. raise your hand. You can ask a question in the chat box. I have a couple that we're going to get to or I've asked already. 
but feel free to participate. Um, that's what this is designed for. And also, if you're watching on the live stream on um, YouTube or Facebook, live, you're welcome to put a question in. If you're watching it on replay, if you get the questions, either I'll get to them or I'll get them back to Megan as appropriate. But we want this to be participative. Let's go back a little bit, if we can, because I know you deal in conservatorships. You probably have more experience of this than, than most attorneys I talk to, which is let's talk back about the competence of the client. I'm sure that's a question you have to ask yourself and, like you said, present to the court. Me as a realtor, I have the same problem maybe before you in that maybe they've called me to sell the property or somebody called me to sell the property and have mom or dad or grandma sign the listing agreement. What's the standard for me as a realtor, do you think, or what are the key things I should look for to determine that they are competent or what are the red flags that maybe they're not and I should be concerned about it? Whether the... the the cons- what would be the cr- before their conservity, yeah, before the conservity, they're just a home seller, right? So I go out to meet with them and they want to sell a property. And then also you find out, hmm, are they competent or not? Or a family member will call me and say they're not competent. You know, I mean, on one hand, like you, they're my client. On the other hand, you know, I'm not sure I'm equipped to make a legal, I'm certainly not equipped to make a legal judgment, but what should I, is there yeah. a standard of care that I should be aware of? or particular um, red flags that that I should be looking for? That's a tough one. I mean, in the situation where I'm representing the conservatee, they're not coming to me and where I'm representing them. The court is appointing me because they're concerned about capacity. So I think that's the real big distinction where you're going, you're engaging in an arm's distance deal with someone else. So if you're concerned about capacity, you can always ask, open-ended questions and talk with them and see if they're repeating themselves, if they remembered what they spoke about. If you think that their judgment is a bit off, you can wait and maybe talk to them again, see if they remember you. I had a situation where an agent signed up. um, I was representing the conservator. So the person in charge of the conservatee, I had an agent sign up the conservative, she was under a conservatorship and that agent tried to fight for the listing agreement. I think if you find yourself in that situation, just give up, you know, just like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, and then that way there's, I doubt you would get the listing agreement, but there still might be a chance. If beg, for, it, beg for mercy would be the better. The best is just beg for mercy. Yeah, beg for, I'm so, so sorry. Like I didn't know. Yeah, but you know, the person that I dealt with attacked me and they weren't really in a position to attack me. Like you entered into a contract with someone who legally can't enter into contracts. So I don't, <laughs> that's good luck end. with that. Yeah. Good luck. You know? So it's, if you find yourself in that situation, it's, it's best to yeah, right. Beg for mercy. And then maybe you get it. Maybe. And, and, you know, I think that's also part of it is, you know, relationships are not about always being right. I'm, I'm married. Turns yeah. out I'm not always right. I don't, I've been married 36 years and I'm not always right. I mostly am, but it's not about being right. It's about when you're not right, how do you respond? And that's true in business, I think as well. We make mistakes, but how do you handle it? So I've got a great question from Oscar. Um, I, and again, some of these answers, I know some of the answers, but I, we're, we're here to get your opinion, uh, Megan. Um, LA courts opened up, are they allowing more people in for the overbid? Um, so I do know that, I mean, having been there, that you both have the option to come in in person and or via um, video, court can connect. 
do you see any difference in the process and the attendance when there's been court confirmations recently since COVID? Or have you had uh, any recently to, to share on? So uh, during COVID, like during the heart of COVID, the only hearings I would attend were sale hearings. I think you should always attend in person. I had a situation where the, let's see, it would be the seller's agent. So my client's agent didn't show. Stupid. <laughs> and, I can say it. Yeah. So, which I thought was interesting um, because why wouldn't you show? And so I, I definitely think if you're, whomever you're representing, whether that be the buyer, the seller, the buyer and or seller, you definitely should be there to overbid for your client. Uh, well, assuming they want to, some clients don't want, want to overbid. Correct. So yeah. you know, that's their prerogative, but. But you um, should definitely be there otherwise. Oh, and the other thing, I countered this the other day as well. The attorney or the agent, I like to do it, <clears throat> has to pre-qualify overbidders. So make sure you have your cashier's check. And then the issue that I had the other day was that the agent refused to show me proof of funds. So let's be clear. So when you say they showed you the cashier's check, they, but yes. they didn't want to show you that they had the balance available. Correct. Now that that is a little debatable issue, I think, or at least. Um, yeah, and I, I think it could be, but I like having proof of funds because I don't want to get into a situation where we accept a sale, especially in the case that I was just in, um, and they back out. And then I have to go back and re, you know, do things. I mean, the, the, the subject property that I was in with had three trustee sales that I had to go in on an emergency basis to enjoin. So it, you know, their lenders are knocking at our door and I just couldn't take that risk. So I've been in those cases both ways where on one hand, I think, I'm not an attorney speaking to one, so you can give us the answer. I think the law is a little not clear in that it only says you have to bring 10%, but it also says the attorney has to qualify the buyer. So you could say, but part qualifying is the proof of funds. I've made the argument successfully sometimes and sometimes not. No, all I need is the 10%. That is qualifying. And I've won some and lost some on that basis. But you, But I think you're saying either way you're doing that as protecting your client because in the long run you don't want the cell to fall out right and there's time like i can wait if you need to get a moment to get your proof of funds that's fine i've had people do that too where they've called the lender gotten the letter um or they've been able to pull up the bank account and show me like it, it's i can wait and i can tell the court to wait so we can make this happen it's not like i need to see proof of funds by 8 35 or otherwise you're not bidding right so usually i'll give ample opportunity and time for the person to get proof of funds make the phone calls that they need to make and if the if they're ready to buy the house then logic would follow that the funds should be there to buy it However, well, they should be ready to close within 10 days. That's, yeah, should be the case. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've been on both. And like I said, sometimes it seems like the attorney is trying to get rid of the buyer. I've had cases where they were really harsh. And I'm in maybe for whatever reason, my buyer didn't have, wasn't able to produce the proof of funds, but we had the 10%. In some cases, they'll say fine. In other cases, it's tough. So I always tell agents, be prepared. And if you can get it, bring it. And if you can't get it, you know, you can only get what you can get. I think as salespeople, we can only get our clients to do what we can get them to do. And 
you do the best you can, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. Um, the next question is another interesting one where I think I've seen it done both ways. Um, so he's saying the attorney works with won't petition the court for the hearing, meaning when we are before you have the court confirmation, you file a petition to confirm the sale. And that's done in LA County at least three days before the hearing date. He won't file that until all the contingencies have been removed. So I know some attorneys will file it expecting the buyer to waive conditions and raise the deposit before the hearing date. And if not, they'll they'll continue. Others want it done before. How do you handle that issue? I usually let the agent handle the contingency stuff. This is more of like the agent realm for me. Um, yeah, when this, again, I like to say as is, where is, like, and then let the agent take it from there. Usually what mm -hmm. I do is I'll review the listing agreement, make sure 90 days, uh, we have the as is language, we've got the NOPA language, and then they take it from there. And then when, when the, and then I tell them, do not accept an offer before this date if it's subject to court confirmation. Don't. <laughs> and then um, once they present the offer to me, then I'll just petition and put it before the court. So. Um, there, another issue comes up. Well, I'm glad to have a real attorney to ask these questions too, for hopefully everybody's benefit. So I know that when the buyer buys it, uh, if, they're, if they're overbidding, it's cash. Now, legally, cash can mean, you know, uh, wiring the money, of course, can mean green counted cash. It could also mean no loan contingency, no mortgage signed by the seller conditions on the seller, and that some buyers were bringing in hard money, they wire that money in. I've had escrow companies reject that, saying the quarter says cash, and your hard money loan doesn't meet that criteria. How would you feel about that, or what would you advise a client on that issue? So once it hits escrow, I'm, you know, I'm not really involved. I've ha I'm sure, I'm sure there's been cases where we've done the as the cash and they ended up using a lender right. and it's gone through. So I thankfully haven't had a hiccup with that yet. Um, but you know, it's, I think if everyone's getting the money, there usually isn't a problem. There shouldn't be. And this is a case where I think the escrow is kind of creating one and the the, the agent for the estate didn't. You're going to be fucking broke. What'd you brokey? Where's your guy? You so, haven't fucking got one. Where's your compound? When SEAL Team 6 second. come for you, you're going to fucking die. I'm sorry about that. We have, we get this, now we're beginning this. I'm going to close the meeting. Hold on one second. Uh, now, crazy what goes on. Um, in this, in I, this love, business. I love this stuff. I love the live Zoom. I do too. And this <laughs> happens as part of it. And I think I, I think I handle that as quick as anybody. I think that's one of my strengths is, um, I've, but when it first started, I've seen some crazy stuff. And um, I yeah. do like to let people come in later. And I do like to let people come in from whatever they register to until one person is a Zoom bomber, then we have to shut it down. So, um, okay. So then next question, this is, a, this is another one. Um, Jack asks, when you say as is an appropriate seller, does that mean the seller doesn't have to disclose things they know about or they, they still are obligated to disclose what they do know, but they're just disclosing it, here's what I know and the rest is as is? Yes, that's a, trick, that's a tricky one. I mean, if you know about it, then you probably should disclose it, right? Um, the person asking is an attorney, FYI, I just want to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you, um, yeah, if you know about it, you should probably disclose it. I, 
I think that's just probably abundance abundance of caution. Well, and I think that's the other thing, because I have a lot of clients say, you know, I want to rehab, I want to make all these changes, I want to do all these things. And that may be appropriate given the circumstances, but the more you play with the property, the more you know. And then I think the more you're going to have to disclose. I think everybody looked like a genius for the last two years rehabbing properties, but now it's real. And some of those people, some of that, that concept sounds great, but it, it, it rarely really works out unless you're buying stuff at wholesale and you're professional. It always costs more than you plan on and takes longer than you expect. So, okay. So um, again, feel free to jump in if you have questions. I could talk to you all day long um, and I find it interesting, but I hope I'm making it interesting for you guys. Let's talk a little bit about, so when you, you know, um, I'm sure in the course of your business, many times you have a chance to uh, refer to a real estate agent and other times you don't. Maybe the client has somebody or kind of comes with a deal for whatever reasons. Um, what is it that you want to see the real estate agent do um, that, that makes a job easier, that earns your business, that earns your attention? What would, or maybe another way to put it is if your cousin or brother was starting in the business of real estate, and they wanted to work in the probate space, what would you advise them to do to be proficient at the business? What would I advise if they want to enter into the probate business? Yeah, they want to be a real estate agent, they want to do probate real estate. What would you advise them to do? Oh, to be definitely successful? shadow an agent who's done it a couple of times, probably more than a couple of times, an agent who knows what they're doing. Because I like to make sure that the agent knows what they're doing so I don't have to do much. You know, I'm already really busy and I don't, and I, I remember it's maybe like five, six years ago, there was one time where I was reviewing, I think I reviewed like four or five real estate contracts in a week. And I was like, I am not an agent. I should not be doing this. I need, so I need to work with people who know what they're doing. I don't really know whether an offer is particularly good or it isn't. I, I rely upon the agent to do that. Um, I like it when agents don't double end. I've been in, I get it. I totally get it. I get it. And it, I'm not going to not work with someone who does, but I've been in situations where I found out after the fact that the agent accepted a lower offer because they were double ending it. And that ultimately harms the estate. So I, I kind of, am a little weary if the agent is always double ending. Um, so those are kind of the things that I look out for. I agree so much. You know, you sign a contract with your seller. So if you're going to work with a buyer too, you better be working with a buyer in a way that helps your seller. Otherwise you're violating your obligation to the client by definition. Yeah. So, so I know I've had like real small pieces of land that nobody else is going to work with a buyer on. And so I double end it to help the state get through the process. But yeah, I, I, that's a tough one to double end it. There has to be some compelling reason or you're just being greedy. And I'll tell you this, I work both sides. I list property and I also work with investors overbidding at court. And I always look for the double end deals. If mm-hmm. the buyer agent is the listing agent, I do a double check, look at that deal. Cause those are the ones that more often than not we're going to overbid on because they do sell them by definition, almost cheaper than otherwise will go. That's a really nice thing about core confirmation is if you're concerned about the double end, then you can put it before the court. Yeah. And then it's, yeah, okay, yeah, you spent a little extra time and money, but you gained probably some for the estate, hopefully. And if not, then you made sure that it was being sold at its right price. For the most part. Now, you know, 
again, I think sometimes some listing agents don't disclose everything they're supposed to, make it easy for you to see the property. I almost feel sometimes I'm working, you know, I'm trying to pry the deal out of their hands sometimes um, when I work with my clients. Um, but no, you're right. It, it does in some ways provide, the purpose of it is to provide guarantee to the estate as best as possible. So I think it certainly works better. And it, the court confirmation process is better than it was back when the court was more spread out geographically, when they had the regional probate courts. I think the consolidation definitely made it more professional for everybody, for, as far as I can tell. Um, okay, so um, besides the real estate contract, what should the agent be aware of? What should they be aware of? Um, I would say, you know, know your lane well, like know your forms, your listing form, your yeah. contract form, like at least at a minimum, start with that. Yeah, know your forms. Um, make sure you don't accept, again, if it's being published for or being put before the court for confirmation, don't accept the offer before the publication date. So let's, let's mix that real quick. What she's saying is, when the court confirmation process is used, which is all conservatorships, limited authority, contested in other cases, the attorney files a, a publication saying we're going to sell the property and we'll accept offers on or after June 1st. And, the, and that process will allow publication. And then come June 1st, they have offers or not. If they have one, they can accept it. And the common mistake is they send the publication out, they accept an offer three days later, and has a contract date, May 25th, and, the probate, and you file for your court date, and the probate attorney says, uh, contract is invalid because it was accepted beforehand. And so you as an attorney have to go through the whole process all over again. How fun is that when you discover that? Oh yeah, no, there's been so many things I've learned with, with, real, with real estate sales and probate. The other one is that for inventory and appraisals, Make sure you're within your 10% if it's court confirmation. Right. Find out what the inventory appraisal is. I've had this issue before where you have to, you know, sometimes work with a probate referee. The probate referees, some of them don't even go out and see the property. I don't think any ever go in. Maybe none of them do. I was going to go in the property. The benefit of the doubt, huh? None ever go in the property. Your, yeah. your fair question is do they actually drive the property? I think just to clarify what you're saying, I don't know. But for sure, they never get in. I've never had, a, as a listing agent, I've never had an agent call me, an, an a, a probate referee, ask to get in the property. They don't go in the property. You're yeah. saying you don't even know if they drive the property. That's a good question. I don't even know. I don't even know if they do. They might just do like a hybrid between Zillow, Redfin, and Realtor.com and just call it a day. So you got to make sure that you and the probate referee are on the same page with the agent so that you have the price right. Uh, also, you have to make sure that your inventory and appraisal is not stale, meaning that you can't have an inventory and appraisal that's a year old. So you got to make sure that the inventory and appraisal is current, um, again, within 10% of the sale price. So to put a fine point on it, you're saying as long as it's 11 months old, is fine. 12 yeah. months, no good. A year, no yeah. good. Yeah. And, and the second thing is, what she's saying is when you sell the property, you, in order to get the court to approve it, it has to be sold for at least 90% of what the probate referee says. So the property is worth 500,000 and the referee says it's 500,000, then you have to sell it for at least 90% or 450. Problem is you may not get the 
report for a while. Here's an interesting fun fact. I don't know if you know this, Megan, just trivia. I learned the hard way. The primary referee by statute has six months to finish the report. Really? Yep. I had, wow. I had one kind of, I got a little aggressive, a little more than I should have been a little bit. He went back and said, just FYI, and he copied and pasted the code, and like, ooh, six months, because he was a little late. At, I thought it, 45 days was a little long for drive-by appraisal. It should take a week. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, they have six months, just FYI. I've had some agents help out the probate referee by giving them comps. Yeah. Pictures of the property. Yeah. Kind of doing the job for them and basically putting it on a silver platter and saying, and this is what, these are the offers we got. Yeah. And here's the pictures and this is what is going on so that yeah. they can, you know, basically do the work for them so that they can turn around because they can hold, um, it can hold up the process. A hundred percent. It's stressful. The INA is stressful because you, you can't sell it without it. And so the question is, do you wait to have it before you file? Because you'll need it to determine if you have the right price or not. And then it comes in low, you got to get it up before the court. And I've had that. We've continued thinking we get it. And it's, it, it really is an interesting process that, um, it's not a problem unless it's a problem on your file. I always tell you, it's never a problem until it's a problem. Then it's a problem. Yeah, it, it really, you know, I've been burned each way um, where the probate referee did the appraisal and it was way too high. Um, and I've also been burned where I haven't gotten the INA in time. <clears throat> so the sale had to get continued. You know, I would probably say wait until you've got offers and then reach out to the probate referee. Usually they'll turn around quickly. And then because you have offers, they have something tangible they can base their appraisal on. Um, especially now with the real estate market, because it's so it's a little bit funky. Yeah. It's hard to predict. Yeah, it's definitely and we're, coming and, yeah. Off, we're coming off extremely inflated prices. And some probate referees are still praising properties really high. Definitely. Definitely. Good analysis there. Um, so Joan asked, does the agent, do you expect a real estate agent to come in other than for the court process? Do you expect them there for the other times that real estate comes up? Do you appreciate them being there with clients or is it just not necessary and you rather have the real estate agent just stay in their lane? I like the, you know, the agent can, do what they, again, not a real estate agent, you can do what they need to do. I don't know if you meet them in person, go to the property, whatever you do to make that all happen. Um, what I, for me, I just like the agent to be at the hearing, right? So I expect the agent to, the, the listing agent to be able to know how to list a property um, and just be at the hearing. On uh, conservatorships, do you, is there also a, Notice proposed action when you list the property, when it's a residence, is that part of the process also? For, for conservatorships, you have to get court approval. So you actually have to first file a petition asking the court for permission to sell the property. So that's step one. Then you do the court confirmation process. So you actually have to file two separate petitions. I've Fine. done it a couple of times. I usually have to file the petition asking for permission to sell on an emergency basis. We're running out of money, something bad's happening. We need to go in quickly and sell this property. And then we turn around and we sell the property subject to court confirmation. 
Now, what you can do is you can, when you file a petition for a conservatorship, you can ask that the conservator have the authority to sell the conservatee's residence without first asking by way of petition, but still subject to court confirmation. Um, you might even be able to get court confirmation waived. It really depends upon the court. Got it. So, so going back to a little bit to competency, this is a common question I get asked. So I, so I run a Facebook group and I get, it's really designed for real estate agents, investors, attorneys. We get, you know, um, families who jump in and have questions. So she's saying there's a woman who took out a reverse mortgage at 76 and her competency is in question. Not sure what that means, but you, you can imagine, you can make an argument one way or the other. And then later she ends up passing what's involved to go back in time and say that contract was invalid because back then she wasn't competent is that i imagine that'd be really hard to do you can't how do you go back in time and evaluate somebody i see that happen often um and it's really if the person's past is up to the heirs whether or not they want to turn over that stone and try to try to pursue that litigious path oftentimes it's we're just going to let it go. Kind of hard to prove, I would think. If the, yeah. If, the student, if they've passed, now you don't have an examination, but to even to examine them back five years is impossible. So what what evidence could you have that they were competent? I mean, there there could be evidence indicating that they're incompetent, but then you're going after the lender. Right. Right. And they can fight you all day long. Typically, so, they have pockets. So do you want to look yeah. at that so sometimes it's like, okay, what are you trying to recover? Is what's the likelihood of recovering it? And is it worth it? Right. Those are kind of the real flash you have to have. So R. Maduro says, is there a list somewhere of agents who are interested in available to mentor other agents of probate? I will say I have a pro a Facebook group called Probate Experts, and you're welcome to come in there and ask questions. And there'll be agents there who will be glad to answer them if you're particular. One thing I don't think Agents in particular, consumers understands how important it is when you ask a question by state because the laws vary. Megan, mm -hmm. like me, is located in, in California. I do interview attorneys around the country with certain common principles, but the law is done in each state and the procedures are different in each county. So if you have a question, um, Armadura, I would say go into probate experts in Facebook. Glad to have you there. Ask a question, but make sure you identify your state and even better would be your county as well. Yeah, that's a really, it's, it is, it is very county specific. Like for example, in Orange County, there's a local rule that says there are no contingencies. So, you know, each, each county is different. I practice typically in Los Angeles County. So what I've been talking on is mostly what happens in the Los Angeles Superior Court. I'm not, you know, and it might, each court is different. And each court may have its own nuances. So there, um, there was a really good article in the Trust and Estates Quarterly written maybe like in 2007, 2008 by a probate attorney, I think it was Carmen. And she uh, basically spells out how to do probate sales. So if you can Google that, it's gonna spell it out for you. For Los Angeles County. I think she was a former probate attorney. Was she it? was. Court, yeah. I'm forgetting um, her last name now, but I know her first name is Carmen. 
Um, so, and, and I don't, I, I don't want to tee you up to be a modest. I know you're not, but you do this regularly. This is your niche. This is your area of expertise. That's not true of all of your colleagues that you come across in court matters. Um, how important is having, you know, if you were advising a client or speaking to somebody else, not selling them on you necessarily because that would be immodest, but in general, how important is it to work with an attorney who really knows this material and works it, and it's complicated enough for you versus somebody who might be the world's greatest attorney in constitutional law or DWI, but they don't do this all the time. How, how important is that distinction, do you think? It's, it's completely different. If you have, yeah, I worked, I interned at the Department of Justice during law school. And for some, I don't know how this happened, but one of the cases ended up being in probate court and all the attorneys were laughing because they didn't understand what was going on in probate court. Like, what is this? Why are things operating like this? We don't understand it. And probate court is very nuanced. There's a lot of little rules that you need to know about. And it, it helps working with an attorney who knows what those rules are. Also, we are in front of the same six, seven judges, so they know who we are and our reputation does carry weight. So, you know, maybe if you make a little mistake, didn't do things quite right, you can kind of navigate it a little bit easier than someone who doesn't know what to do. I've seen that. I've been in court. And I've seen judges say to an attorney, that I see as a regular, you know, can we stipulate you'll take care of this? Yes, I will. No, let exactly. it go. And other attorneys, they're going to say, sorry, continue three days, next case. Exactly. And I don't think customers appreciate that little thing makes sometimes a really big difference in the process. Yeah, a lot of times what the judge will do is say, okay, counsel, submit it with the order. Whatever right. you need to update. Because right. they believe you that it got done. Just submit it with the order when you file it. And then also varies by county a lot. And I think, you know, attorneys practicing in another county don't know, you know, I don't know if you know this, I'm in real estate, so my, my business is a little wider than yours. In LA, you get the court order verbally in court, the judge says, yes, your cell is approved, we all celebrate. But then the attorney's gotta provide the order to the judge, then it's gotta be correct, and the judge has to sign it, then we have to get a copy of it in order to, then with 10 days to close. All that has to happen in San Bernardino, the clerk types up the order, hands to the judge, they sign it and give it right back to you. On the spot, you walk out the door. I have a court approved sale. It's 45 days old. We still don't have the judge's signature on it yet. Oh, you're not going to, I don't understand. I see that all the time. The close in 15 days, I laugh out loud because you're not going to get the order for four to six weeks. And, and I think any, you know, if, you're, if your client is buying a piece of property out of probate, they need to be flexible. Like they, they need, you know, you're buying, you, you know, think what you're not buying in a traditional sense. So things happen and you're buying a piece of property that's tied to litigation. So you, you got to be flexible, know that things are getting done, but you know, you're running through the court system and investors who often buy pieces property out of probate are pretty good about it they know what's going on you know every now and then you'll get a private buyer and i think they're a little bit alarmed by the process and get a, get a little bit nervous but 
the the delay isn't anything nefarious it's just we have to work with the court and we have to work with heirs you know it's not just a simple transaction between buyer and seller there's a lot of moving parts it can be i, I had a case where we the the, the tree made a couple mistakes resubmitted it was about 45 days and then before a week before close COVID hit and there was a guy staying in the property and we said, well, he needs to be out. No, no, he wants to be there till we close. And I said, we're not buying a property with a guy in because at that time of COVID, you couldn't evict anybody. So my investor is not going to buy a property with a guy living there. It's not an option. And it took months to find unwind that. Um, but yeah, these things are very complicated. A lot of moving pieces. You have attorneys involved, you have a judge involved. That's a, the tenant issue is a good one. I learned that one early on. I tried to help evict a tenant and it was just, I was like, I don't do unlawful detainer. So it, it was just kind of a mess. And I realized it's, you might as well you know, obviously disclose there's a tenant, say it's not, you know, on the estate side, on the seller side, it's not our responsibility to get the, the tenant out and sell it with, I used to say, sell the property with the tenant in it. You're going to hit, you're going to take a deduction, obviously, but you're going to have to pay one way or another to get the tenant out of the house. Right. So, and then I'm assuming that the buyer, oftentimes a developer will probably pay them to get out. Something happens, you know, if there's enough money involved, something will happen. Yeah. It's an unfortunate part there. Um, okay, uh, question again from Oscar, is a probate referee just average subject property according to their sales uh, or without ever going out? And then if the listing agent disagrees, he or she will have to hire a contractor. No, um, I think we, we covered that. I think we said, I don't think any of us know what the probate referees do. They they get the order and they submit the appraisal, but they never tell you what they did. They just send you the report. And it's interesting, the report just has the legal description, the APN and the price. There's no comps. On the invoice, there's always an invoice for photos. You don't get the photos. You get nothing, but the legal description, the APN, the price, correct? Correct. Nothing else. And, and, and I show this to other agents. They're like, well, how could that be? Yeah, well, welcome to probate real estate. Um, um, when you have the buyer and they're within their 10% are their pair costs deducted. So Joe, what, what, what you're saying was on a probate, the inventory appraisal report says the property is worth, let's say $500,000. You have to sell it for 90% of that. The probate referee is supposed to assess the property as it is, but they don't go in it. So sometimes I've sent them pictures and said, hey, inside it's uninhabitable. It's thrashed. Here's pictures of it, and they'll adjust the value of the property based on that. And sometimes they won't. You know, they're like any other business. There's good ones and bad ones. I think we all have dealt with all that. Um, somebody asked about the article. I'm gonna Google search that, and if I find it, I'll put it in the show I notes. I have it, Bill. I can send if it. Not, if you can, great. Yeah. And if if yeah. I don't get it from you, I'll I'll remind you because I think uh, that would be a great uh, tool. Um, that. Uh, Another question on the temperature. Okay, I think we covered all the questions. Any other, I don't see any hands up or Zoom hands up or questions on the live chat. I see some some thumbs up on different things we did. So last question, maybe just talk about business development. Um, again, I, what I don't want to do is ask a question and have 200 real estate agents solicit you tomorrow for your business. <laughs> but if you knew of a real estate agent who was looking to build a business in this field, they, they, they're learning, they're learning their field, they're learning the documents. What would the business development practices you recommend a real estate agent to pursue to get the word out to attorneys to earn referrals or business from uh, attorneys like you? 
think, you recommend not to do and what would you recommend to do? You know, it, it really depends upon the attorney, how receptive they are to being solicited. Some are okay with it. Some are, I mean, I get a lot of solicitation emails. I think there's programs and people out there that run basically searches when probate cases are filed and then they sell that list to agents so that agents can then turn around and um, send an email out to the, the attorney saying, hey, I'd like to sell this piece of property. I think they also do send out solicitation to the client. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's one way you can go about it, but I think the, the best is just networking and getting your foot in the door. Like again, shadowing an attorney, being down at court, making yourself known, showing up at trust and estates events, whether that be through the Los Angeles County Bar Association, the Santa Monica Bar Association, any sort of bar association where you know that there's going to be attorneys and they're talking about trust and estates. There's also going to be agents you might be able to meet. Um, it might be able to help walk you through the process. There's obviously there's going to be a bunch of attorneys and other like-minded professionals. So I think the in-person networking and the actual like doing the sale <laughs> is going to get you business. Like if you do your job well, you're going to get more business. Do a good job. Everybody know yeah, about it. Do a good job. Yeah. So is your, at this stage of your business, is it most, is it all coming in a referral? Do you do business development yourself for your practice? It's, it's referrals. You're busy. Yeah. Yeah. Busy. Good for you. Referrals. Yeah. Um, well, look, I appreciate we're coming at the end of time here. So I really appreciate so much um, your willingness to kind of share. Obviously we want to, as an industry, do a better job supporting our clients, making more money, but to do that, we have to do a better job. So thank you for sharing information. Obviously, you're in the business, and if we have particularly uh, uh, somebody in the conservatorship um, or they want to talk to you about probate or trust in the states, I have your website up, um, uh, wa.law, W-A-U-G-H.law. What's the best way to yep. get in touch with you? Do you just go to the website? Is there a, there's your contact? Yeah, you can go to my website. There's all this. There's my email. Email's the best. Um, I'm attached to it like I think every attorney is. So email's the best. And then there's my phone number. You really are, because I I know when I, I, the first time I worked with you, I actually introduced a client to you and you responded to the email. I was shocked because most, I, I don't know if you know this, most attorneys really aren't attached to their email. Like, oh, then maybe it's the millennial attorney in me. Maybe, know. maybe it's what it is. Yeah. So, well, look, fantastic. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing with us and appreciate you and, um, um, just thank you. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Bill. And for the rest of you on the call, um, we do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's live stream on YouTube and Facebook. You know the Facebook group, Probate Experts. If you have questions there, want to network with other agents, with other consumers, with other attorneys. Appreciate your support, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you then. Bye. Thank you. Bye.